Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. I'm happy that you're here this week because we have a very important topic to discuss. That is student loan debt. Did you know that student loan debt is the largest form of non-mortgage debt in the United States and that total outstanding balances, uncollateralized, that is, have increased by sevenfold since 2004? Back then, it was $260 billion owed. Today, the total is $1.75 trillion. That's trillion with a trillion. President Biden, for whom I voted, by the way, because the alternative was and remains a dumpster fire, is expected to forgive hundreds of billions of dollars of these loans, but with absolutely no plan for fixing the underlying problems that got us here in the first place. On this week's Crazy Money, I speak to Oren Cass. He's an incredibly intelligent human being. He is the executive director of a group of thinkers called American Compass, and he is the author of a book called The Once and Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America. Oren's done significant research into the topic of student loans, which he outlines in a very recent article called The Banality of Student Loans, links to which are in the show notes. And I beseech you to read this and share it with all your friends after you listen to this incredible conversation I've had with Oren and share it with all your friends. In this conversation, Oren and I discuss why student loans are not subject to bankruptcy proceedings and the massive problems that causes, why America's college for all policy is a terrible one that does a huge disservice to the students who need an economic boost the most, who college is right for and what the alternatives should be, why the federal government should not underwrite student loans and who should, hint, hint, here's the next one, why and how colleges and universities should take more accountability for the price and product they provide to their students. I know you're going to find this conversation interesting and enlightening. Please enjoy our chat with Oren Cass. Oren Cass, welcome to Crazy Money. Thanks for having me. Oren, we're going to get into the student loan issue in just a second. But before we do, tell me a little bit about who you are and the work you do at American Compass. Yeah, sure. I guess I'm the technical term is a policy wonk. Uh, I, <laughs> I study and, and way to sell yourself early, Warren. <laughs> so for anyone who has, for anyone who is still on the podcast, I, I <laughs> study and, and read and write about public policy all day, but have some fairly strong opinions about what is wrong with how, frankly, both, both progressives and conservatives have, have been approaching a lot of issues, I'd say for the last 40 years or so. And so uh, at American Compass, we work on trying really across the political spectrum, but but focused especially on on the right of center to try and rethink, you know, what on earth should conservatism actually mean and, and how can we think about the economy and, and start to create policies that are actually going to help your, your typical working family. We'll talk about your book, The Once and Future Worker, toward the end of the podcast. But what's really interesting about the student loan issue is that it brings a lot of different issues together. It brings in families, it brings in education, it brings in class, and it brings in uh, public funding of, of uh, privately consumed goods. So let's talk about the facts on student loans real quick. If I have it right, we, uh, there were $260 billion in student loans outstanding in 2004, where there's over $1.5 trillion today. And the average balance of a student graduating with student loans is around $29,000. Is all of this because college is too expensive? Well, college is very expensive. You know, whether it's, whether it's too expensive or not, I guess, is, is in the eye of the beholder. It, it, it has a big price tag, but we, we also spend a tremendous amount of money, right? Like, it's not like there are these huge college university barons who are, are pocketing billions of dollars. Um, what, <laughs> right. what we've done is created an extraordinarily expensive college experience. If, if you think about just the fancy buildings on 
dotting campuses, the the dorms, the the levels of administration. You know, one thing that's very interesting, if you look up at at where costs have risen so much in recent decades, it's not actually the professors, right? So what what we're spending all the money on isn't where can we find somebody to teach kids things they need to know. It's sort of all the rest of it. And we now spend, I think, about twice as much as a European country like a France or a Germany on a college education for somebody. And I think, unfortunately, the flip side is it's it's not clear what we're actually getting for that money. When you say we're spending it, how is the average taxpayer investing in his or her fellow citizens' education? Yeah, that's a great point. There's obviously a, a huge amount that people are paying themselves. So whether it's the student, the student's family, you know, tuition costs are way up. But it's really important to remember that most students are at public universities, you know, state state U. And the price tag for that is dramatically reduced by public subsidy. So your, your state government is already spending a lot of money to provide what, what is a more affordable college degree from a state university. So, you, you know, there you might be paying, say, $10,000 a year of tuition rather than $30,000, $50,000 at a private university. But then on top of that, out of that money you're supposed to pay, you might be receiving all sorts of of support so that you might be receiving direct grants. If you're borrowing money, you're benefiting from subsidies that, that the public provides on, on the money you borrow. If you saved up, you're probably benefiting from special tax treatment that let, let you avoid pay taxes on that money. And so all in, you know, if you go across state, federal spending, we're spending about $250 billion a year supporting higher education with public money. Uh, which comes out to, you know, on the order of about $10,000 per year per student who's in school. So the the taxpayers are subsidizing each individual's loans, which many of us benefit from, either ourselves or for our children. 20% of the borrowers that have borrowed money to go to college are in default on their student loans. But why, Oren? They're college graduates. (laughs) Aren't they perfectly positioned for a life of self-autonomy when it comes to their financial world? Well, the the first problem is they're not college graduates. You know, a a huge share of of folks who enroll in higher education don't complete. And in fact, if if you look at who's defaulting on student loans and and who's facing the highest pressure, it's not necessarily that student who borrowed a lot of money, completed a four-year degree, got a great job. They might have a high student loan balance, but they also have the ability to pay that. The, the real student loan crisis is all of the people who were pushing into higher education, who in, in the past we wouldn't have sent to college, who are very unlikely to succeed in college, but we tell them to borrow the money anyway. And, and they drop out. Maybe they only have five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 of debt, but now they've wasted all that time. They've spent that money. They have nothing to show for it. And so that's really where, to the extent that we have a crisis, I would say the, the main crisis really lies. So you, you write a lot about the college for all concept. You believe deeply that not everybody should go to college. And by saying that out loud, printing it uh, in ink and pen or the digital equivalent, you risk being called an elitist. Why do you go to such trouble to make the point uh, co- of college not being the solution for everyone? Well, because it's true. So <laughs> that's that's a good starting point. <laughs> oh, come on. That's a terrible <laughs> place to start. It, it is true and not understood, I think, is really the sweet spot. You know, part of the phenomenon here that, that has created this college bubble is that, unsurprisingly, the folks who are policymakers typically are people who went to college. They're, they're people who it worked out for, and they tend to hang out with other people who it worked out for. And so we have our in our head this idea that, you know, look, sure, you can find somebody who it didn't work for, but that college is a great idea and, and that's where everybody should be. 
And the reality is that if you step back and look at the data, it's actually remarkably improbable <laughs> to make it successfully through our, our college pipeline. So, you know, we still have a huge share of students who don't even graduate from high school, let's not forget. Uh, and, and we've got our graduation rates from high school up, but a lot of that seems to be just by lowering standards and, and giving to diplomas to people who haven't really completed the work. Uh, then we have a huge share of people who complete high school but don't even enroll in college. And, you know, th these are approximate numbers, but it's helpful to think about, roughly speaking, about one in five are still not completing a meaningful high school degree. One in five are graduating from high school but not going on to college. One in five will go on to college but then drop out of college. One in five will complete college but end up in a job that didn't even require their degree. And only about one in five, actually fewer than one in five young Americans actually go high school, college, career on that pathway that, that we sort of figure is, is where we should be sending everybody. And look, it's a great pathway, right? <laughs> if, if that's going to work for if you. If it works for, if if it it works works for, for you, you. then, then that, that's a good pathway to be on. But the reality is that it doesn't work for most people. And so to push everyone in that direction, to push all of our resources in that direction, ends up benefiting a, a very small share of the population. And, and by the way, those who are likely to be best off economically anyway, at the expense of everybody else. So who's in that group? Okay, let's let's talk frankly about who's in these groups, right? So that top quintile, the, the people who went to college, they finished college and they're using their degree. That would be arguably me, probably you, uh, people who come from stable backgrounds, or maybe I'm just making that assumption. Who's in that group? Is it smart kids, people from two-parent families, people from certain geographies? Who's in that group? Yeah, so it's it's all of the above. It, it's certainly disproportionately kids who are coming from stable, more advantaged backgrounds, you know, kids who have good role models, kids whose parents went to college a lot of the time. But then it's also kids who have a lot of academic aptitude. You know, that one thing we've found that surprised us somewhat in our survey data is it, it's not just a sort of reproduction generation after generation. All <laughs> Everybody who went to college goes and have kids right. who go to college. You, you see a, a huge share of of, of folks who come from you say, oh, that's a, you know, stable two-parent household, the parents have degrees, that kid's going to be fine. Huge share of those kids aren't fine, actually. Um, and then there are plenty of kids who are coming from disadvantaged backgrounds or, you know, from stable but, but lower middle class backgrounds who have a lot of academic aptitude and, and they can go on and be very successful. But at the end of the day, I, I think what it comes down to is two things. One, you know, academic aptitude is is one of many skills out there in the world. It's we we have this unfortunate way, I think, of of using the word smart to describe someone who has academic aptitude, and then someone else we say something condescending like, "Oh, well, he you know he's good with his hands," right? When, right. when the reality is that someone who's good with their hands and can like actually be a successful electrician is every <laughs> every bit as talented, and by the way, a lot more useful, and probably going to earn a lot more money. Yeah than somebody who's like great at saying interesting things about Shakespeare. And so... Right, yeah. No, I, I really like one of those people who knows a lot about Shakespeare to come and fix my uh, my plumbing or or my electrical issues at my house. Right, and, and so it's, it's important, I think, to say, look, there are kids who have a lot of academic aptitude for whom the thing that makes sense when they turn 18 or 19 is to go sit in a classroom for four or more years. Like you said, I was one of those kids. And I went and sat and studied political economy for four <laughs> for four years and read about a lot of stuff right. that I write about. And, and I'm glad that that option was available to me. But it is not somehow elitist 
to turn around and note that that is not an option available to or right for a whole lot of other people. I think it, it is an awful lot more egalitarian to recognize, no, wait a minute, people have very different aptitudes. By the way, people have very different desires. You know, another interesting kind of cliche we have our, in our head is like, you know, you go away to college, right? You do the college tour with your parents. And even among people who go to college, most are still living at home or going to college very close to home. A huge share of them don't want to go far away. They want to stay in their communities. When we surveyed people and asked, you know, what do you want out of the education system? Far and away, it wasn't maximize my academic achievement and, and get into the best college I can. It was give me the skills to build a decent life in the community where I live. And so that's what we need to, that, that's what we should be asking our education system to do. And but that's what's so fascinating about this issue, the way you analyze it, I think, is because you dive into some of the assumptions that we just make. And, and I'd love for you to talk about the assumption that, that success looks like optimizing your professional potential, that moving away and be, which is, by the way, what I did, I moved to New York and Silicon Valley. And by the way, I'm back in my hometown of Atlanta 20 years later, but I moved away, I optimized my income. And that's what success looks like. And the other thing that you really talked about that was really important was this chart, the most, the most powerful chart in politics today, which demonstrates the difference between someone who went to college and someone who didn't. Can you talk about these assumptions and how they inform policy and have driven us potentially in the wrong direction? Yeah, sure. And, and I, I would start with that chart and actually make a modification to it, which, which I've only realized recently. I used to talk about that chart exactly in those terms. And I realized that you know, the distinction isn't so much between went to college or didn't, or, you know, has a degree or, or, or doesn't it's, it's, and this is earning yeah, power. That's earning right. It's power really a much for... smaller group who got a degree and got a job that required that degree because part of yeah. the problem, we have this idea that, you know, the future is these kinds of jobs and the economy has all these jobs and we have to educate kids for them. And the reality is we're actually producing new college graduates about twice as fast as the economy is actually adding jobs that require college degrees. So part of that reason you have all these kids who are completing college and not finding jobs that require their degrees, it's not because they're dumb kids or bad at you know job interviews or something. It's because the, the jobs aren't even there. Our, our education system and our idea of our education system is aligned neither with the reality of people's desires and aptitudes nor with the reality of our economy. And so, you know, when we think about success, to your your second point, which I, I think is exactly right, I think, again, we have to entirely respect and support the person whose definition of success is to go start that company in Silicon Valley. Obviously, that's that's incredibly important and we need those folks. We just have to be aware of how much our our view of our culture is skewed by the fact that those are the people who create our culture. And that the stories that get written about in, in the newspaper, that get made into movies, that get depicted on sitcoms, those profiles of people, absolutely, there are people like that, but there are, there are at least as many, probably a lot more people not like that. And, and a successful economy and ultimately a successful nation has to be one that has room for everybody. I want to talk about the metrics that you would use to define a successful life. But first, I want to talk about any potential generational differences. And I'll use this one anecdote. I don't pretend to represent this as, as uh, statistically representative data, but I see a lot of these anecdotes out there. I, I received a pitch from a publisher to interview the author of a book called OK Boomer. 
here's what happened. Basically, it's it's. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it or not, but I I don't. I, I read probably 50 pages of it, and I stopped at the point where the author said that the reason that boomers don't understand what her generation, the millennial generation, was going through is because they've done all this economic injustice to us. She said, "I can barely afford to pay my law school debt as uh, as a freelance writer." And I'm like, okay, well, clearly you're not supposed to be paying your law school debt as a freelance writer. You're supposed to be paying your law school debt as as a lawyer who went to NYU. And maybe you hate that job, but you made a commitment when you took those loans on that you're going to have to go eat crap at a white shoe law firm doing research in the library for five years until you buy yourself back. Is that a generational thing or is or am I just imagining that because I'm an old fogey white guy. I think there's definitely a generational element to it, which is that there is an attitude among younger people that they are supposed to sort of just be pursuing their dreams and doing what they love and that they're entitled to have that work out. I, I think the flip side is we should acknowledge that that is exactly what the culture created by the boomers and older guys such as yourself tells them. That, you know, <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't tell him to follow her that, bliss. That the, you know, when, when we talk about a generation, it, it's right to recognize that generations have these different attitudes, but it's not like there's some like, it's not like there was something different in the water when these kids were gestating, right? It's, it's, the, it's the culture that they've been raised in. And so I, I think we have, we right. have two problems. We, we both have a problem that we've, we've built this culture that somehow suggests you know, that you you can and should just do what you love and pursue your dreams and that that, that is what you're entitled to and it is going to work out. But then in, in conjunction with that, both are we've built a culture and an economy that says really the only way to make it is to do this set of things. So you are here in high school to prepare for college because, gosh, we sure don't have anything else for you. And, you know, yeah. you're going to go to college to presumably earn some sort of degree. And then you're probably going to, someone's going to tell you, you really need to go to grad school if you want to get a good job. And so, you know, I, I actually have a law degree too. And I, I spend a lot of time talking to people who are thinking about whether or not to go to law school. And there's a lot of advice they need that I would say they're probably not getting, you know, one of which is like, do not go to law school right after college. Even if you're a hundred percent sure you want to be a lawyer, <laughs> maybe, you know, give it some time, get out there and do something else first. And then second, don't go to law school unless you know exactly why you're going to law school. And mm -hmm. instead, we have the message that's been sent. It's like, well, more education is just always better and has an automatic return on investment. So I, on the one hand, have very little sympathy for the freelance writer who's having trouble paying her law school debts, because obviously, if you take on the law school debt, you're probably going to have to go be a lawyer to pay for it. Uh, but at the same time, I sort of recognize, you know, she was pushed into an education system and set of options and set of messages that was just not a very good one. Okay. And par that's partly culture, but it's partly a system that removes a lot of friction from that decision because they say, here's what you should be doing. Oh, and by the way, here's a stack of money to pay for it that you're automatically approved for regardless of what your plans are afterwards. So let's talk a little bit about why is student loans, why, are, why is student debt treated differently than other kinds of debt in our economy? Yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting question and and something that I think, you know, on one hand is just like a technocratic, like, how <laughs> what should our policy be? But really is a very... But it's hugely impactful. It's hugely, well, it's hugely impactful. impactful and turns out to actually be, I think, really philosophical, right? Because as a starting point, it shouldn't be different. One, one of the strangest things about, you know, forgiving student loans and, and this sort of discussion is like, well, why aren't we forgiving auto loans? 
dollars, right? Like, <laughs> what about all those people who borrowed money to buy a car? I bet they'd love you to, you know, <laughs> wipe out their debt. So that they can get right. to their job, so that they can go and right. do and, their and work. We have this sort of strange concept of, of student debt in our minds. And, and I think what it comes, what it starts from is that by default, student debt is just a terrible idea, right? Like from, from everybody's perspective. I mean, if, if you're a young person, you probably don't necessarily know what exactly you want to do. You are sort of trying to place this big bet with an uncertain return that is going to leave you on the hook for a long period of time. It's hard to believe that that's really the the smart move for somebody to, to take that on. And again, some people, you know, they know exactly what they want to do. They know they're going to be good at it. They've got the test yep. score. They, they're off and that's fine. For an awful lot of people, really sort of a speculative risk to take. And then from the perspective of the lender, why on earth would you ever lend money to an 18-year-old <laughs> with no credit history, no way to validate, right. you know, how they're going to behave or what they're going to do with this money. Nothing you can take back, right? At least if you, at least if someone defaults on their car loan, there's a car there. If someone de- defaults on their education loan, what do you, you can't take back their education. And so it's, it's really a very fo- foolish loan to make. And so by default, in fact, not a lot of these loans would get made. And for some reason, policymakers looked at this situation and instead of concluding, gosh, we should really have an education system that's not premised on very young people going way into debt to finance something we're not sure they right. want or need. Instead, they said, no, this is exactly what we need. We should just create a set of policies to make sure everyone goes and does this, even though every party to the transaction is basically screaming, no, no, don't do this. So how did that get formalized? And what has that created in terms of how we solve this mess? So I mean, like this, this has created some structural, it sort of put us in handcuffs in ways that uh, having a, a more market-based lending system would allow for mistakes to resolve themselves. Yeah, well, so the first thing that happened was the federal government came in and just said, we'll guarantee the loans. So we, we want people to make loans to these students, even though they're risky loans. So please just go ahead and do it. And if they get defaulted on, we we will pick up the tab. At which point, of course, a lot of efforts are great. Sure. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's what could possibly let's start, go wrong. Let's start handing out the money. In conjunction with yeah. that, then the government said, wait, wait a minute, though. Now that we're on the hook for all of this, we're worried that these students are going to go get their education and then just declare bankruptcy and there will be nothing for us to take back. So now let's add a rule also that you can't get rid of your loans in bankruptcy. So any other kind of debt, it, it, it's a somewhat unique, actually, American principle, and I think an incredibly important one, that we say, look, we expect you to repay your debts. If you get to the point where you can't, we actually do have this mechanism called bankruptcy. And it's we have an incredibly lenient bankruptcy system compared to the rest of the world. And we say, could someone abuse it? Yeah, maybe. But there are a lot of costs associated with declaring bankruptcy too, right? You have to forfeit a lot of assets. Your credit goes in the tank, your reputational costs. And so we're basically going to trust someone's only going to declare bankruptcy if they kind of need the bankruptcy, really. And that turns out to be a really great system. And then we said, except student loans. <laughs> student student right. loans, we're going to, we've decided that education is so valuable. We don't care how much it costs. We're going to back you in spending as much as you want on education and then we're going to turn around and tell you, no matter what, you can't get out from under that ever. <laughs> like, that's our, that is our brilliant way of, of financing education with the added bonus that, that because we structured it this way, 
guess what colleges and universities and all the people working there did? They said, well, great, then we're just going to keep making this more expensive and hiring more people and building our little empires. And it doesn't matter because the money is just going to keep flowing. And so that's that's how we got into this situation. You know, to me, the discussion now of like, well, let's just forgive student loans is, is exactly the wrong step. I mean, we could talk about all the technical reasons it's a terrible idea and unfair, but at the end of the day, it just doubles down on exactly what we've done wrong. It it says, yes, this is this special debt that's not like other debt. And we recognize the special thing that students do that's different from other people. And we're going to give them this special dispensation. And by the way, we're going to do nothing about the underlying system. We're just, <laughs> we're going to run it back again the next day. So you could forgive 100% of student loans and then tomorrow the clock just starts up again. Yes, which 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 seems <laughs> unwise. And and by the way even worse because now on top of everything else you've sent a message that hey guys when the student loan when you when you guys really start getting crushed maybe we'll just give it all back. That's now on the table also. Yeah, it's crazy. The the number one reason or a lot of the reasons often you read that one of the reasons you shouldn't forgive student loans is because it's actually rewarding people who have professional degrees, who have very high balances of student loans, who I would have been in 1998. And I also was went out. By the way, when I graduated from from business school with $80,000 in debt, I actually wanted to be a stand up comedian, which I eventually became. But I realized I couldn't do that because I had these obligations. So I went out and I worked and then I paid off my loans and I went and did comedy for full time for two years in, in, in Los Angeles. But the, the argument you hear right now is that, well, you're just rewarding the wrong people, uh, professionally uh, educated people who are dentists and lawyers and uh, business school people who are going to make 300 grand in a couple of years, but have high balances. Is that the best argument for not forgiving loans? I don't I don't think that's the, the best argument. It, it gets to one element of the problem, certainly. Um, but, you know, there are ways that you can address that somewhat. I mean, for one thing, you know, you could say, well, these kinds of loans are in versus out. You could say, we're only going to forgive $10,000. We're only going to forgive $50,000. I think at the end of the day, though, what you find is that any attempt at sort of tailoring this and saying like, we're going to somehow figure out who who really deserves the money and just give them give them their money back. There's There's no real way to do it well. And you're left at the end of the day with the question, why these people and not other people? Why why the student debtors and not the car debtors, a huge share of whom were just trying to find a way to get to work? And so this is why I emphasize the bankruptcy point so much, which is that in, in any other context, we would say, look, guys, if you actually can't pay your loans and you're under so much pressure that bankruptcy is preferable, well, then declare bankruptcy. But of course, with student loans, we've said, ha, no, <laughs> no, you cannot. And so it seems to me it makes a lot more sense to just say, okay, actually, you can. Rather than try to, to design through policy some filter that's going to figure out who does and does not deserve and need help, and then make the help to those people totally free and costless, different than we treat everybody else in the world, why don't we just say student debt is debt, like, <laughs> like all debt? And if you a debtor, with student loans are in such a situation, whether if you're that business school student with the 300K and you think bankruptcy is the right next step, that should be available to you too, with all of the costs and benefits that come with it. If you're the person with $5,000 of debt and bankruptcy is the right next step, that's the step for you with all the costs and benefits. But let's let people make that choice facing the exact same cost we always ask people in debt to look at when they make the choice. And let's actually proceed on that, what I think is much fairer basis. 
let's say you could start the, the the lending system, student lending system from scratch today. What would it look like? So I, I think you you have to get the government out of this lending business altogether. And and I don't say that for some sort of principled small bit, you know, small government. Small government conservative or in this. <laughs> no, in, in that's fact, what, what, you what, are. what sort of makes the, the conservatism we work at on an American Compass distinctive is I would be the first to say there are a lot of places where there's a really important role for government in the economy. I'm happy to, to discuss all of those. But when you look at what's going on in, in the education market with student loans, the idea that what we need is to sort of grease the skids and make it easier for people to take unwise loans, is it's just backward. It is it is defining the problem wrong and then coming up with the wrong solution. What I'd like to see the government do is say, look, public education is very important. For a lot of people, that means college education. For a lot of people of limited means, you know, we don't want to cut off their access to higher education. So we already have this state university system that provides generally affordable higher education. Is it expensive? Yes. But in, in the median state, which is Colorado, you know, annual tuition at a four-year University of Colorado high-quality public system, it's only $8,000 a year. So, look, $8,000 is a lot of money. Is that something that someone cannot afford to pay part of with a part-time job, save some money for, pay back a few years after? It's, it's still achievable. And so I would say, let's look at what that kind of typical public education cost is, and let's have the federal government say, we'll offer a grant that covers half to anybody who needs it. That is our commitment to you. Now, if you want to go to some place that costs $50,000 a year, you're also still getting $4,000 a year. So the the fact that some of these places cost a lot more, but don't actually provide a better education, that's that's for you, the student and you, the college to work out. That's that's not my problem as a policymaker. That's not the public's problem. Then if the government's not guaranteeing the loans, who's who is guaranteeing? The right. Loan? So what's going to happen if if we shift to this model? A couple of things are going to happen. One is universities are going to reduce their costs real quick and they're going to start actually <laughs> they're, they're going to start they're going to start actually providing things that add value to people that people are willing to pay for when they see the cost of it. And then the second thing that's going to happen is that, you know, I, I went on that rant a bit earlier on how ridiculous it is to try to finance student student debt. There's there's one institution out there that actually is very sensible for them to finance student debt. They have the right incentives. They have the right information. They have control of the outcomes to some extent. And that, of course, is the colleges and universities. So just like if you go to buy a car today and you need an auto loan, that auto loan is actually typically coming from the car company because they want you to buy the car. Colleges and universities should be providing the financing to students. So if you're a a fancy, expensive university and you're confident that what you are providing is actually worth that cost and that you are admitting students who are actually going to benefit from it and get something of value that is going to allow them to pay you back over time, then by all means, and lend them the money, (laughs) which is, you know, and you could structure various ways, but essentially what you're saying is don't charge them up front. The deal will be if you want to go to an expensive school, you are agreeing to pay for that education over the following decade as you graduate and have earnings. And you're, the school is going to understand you're probably only going to ever get that money if you actually provide something of value and put that person in a position to pay you back. And schools that do that successfully will be very successful. And schools that don't will go out of business. And that's great. Would you price a uh, finance program differently than you price a classics program? 
if if I were running a university, <laughs> I mean, that's that's a great question and exactly the sort of thing a university would actually have to think about, right? <laughs> what am I? Because the, the, the argument is you're saying that the classic educational system, which you know, might be argued to be dead anyway, but you, that, that that has no value or it has significantly less value. How do you answer that well, question? Well, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think the question is for who, to, to whom and for what purpose are you providing the education? So a, a classical liberal arts education for somebody who is, you know, has demonstrated through their academic record, you know, a very high ability to do that kind of work and is likely to proceed into a career that is built on that kind of work, classical education can be exactly the right thing for that person. They're going to go on to earn a good income and should be happy to pay the, what it costs to provide that education. What we, what we can't be doing is saying, uh, well, and any college that tried this would quickly find itself out of business, is saying, hey, look at this great classical education that's extremely expensive to provide. Come one, come all. <laughs> Come spend your four years doing this, consume these resources, then go back out and, you know, go out into the world, have no way to repay the cost of those resources. That's just not going to work. And it shouldn't fly. We shouldn't consider right. that an acceptable way to do business. You wouldn't want to create a glut of, of associate professors for whom there is no job on the other side of graduation. Well, I, that's, that's right. And, and unfortunately, I think we do have such a glut today. I mean, you know, and, and I, I, I just described it as sort of not, not a way to do business. You know, higher education is a business. And, you know, sometimes I, I refer to it as big ed because depending on how. Who sounds, but big ed sounds like a greasy used car salesman on the side of a country well, highway. And, and if you check out some of the behaviors in some of these admissions departments, that may not be <laughs> such a bad description. But regardless, they depending on how you measure it, you know, the higher education industry is the largest lobbyist in Washington. The, oh, wow. the and and at the local level, you know, the colleges and the community colleges, universities as kind of local employers, as sources of, of pork from the state capital and, and Washington, th this is a a huge, tightly tied to government government business that has created just these massive, massive, both bureaucracies of just layer after layer of assistant deputy, you know, social dean for whatever. Um, and then also professors who, you know, if, if that's how they want to spend their lives and, and they can find someone to pay them, that's fine. But, you know, I'm not sure how many scholars of comparative 13th century literature we need. And so part of the problem is that the, it has sort of become a, a self-supporting industry where higher education cranks out all of these specialized, you know, academic, typically PhDs, for whom the only plausible form of employment is in that exact same institution teaching the next generation of people. And it, it's, there just isn't a lot of economic value there. And I think, you know, it is burdening the entire society for the benefit of a very small and elite group who, who don't need those resources. You didn't like Dead Poets Society, the movie. Well, that was you? a prep school, wasn't it? <laughs> I, no, I, 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 I prefer, uh, I don't know if you've seen the SNL skit where the kid jumps up on the table and the ceiling fan immediately takes his head off. Uh, that's, <laughs> I like that.
I think you can. I, th- I think you can say both things. As you say, yes, the classics are the things we stay alive for. Art and beauty and all those things are wonderful. But you have to be able to pay your bills, and you shouldn't let. Uh, you shouldn't rely on your fellow taxpayer to pay for your to subsidize your your PhD in a field where you're probably not going to find employment. So, yeah, well, that's that's right. And and you know the the PhD problem is also such a a, a niche one. It, it's it's extremely annoying. And when you talk about, well, you know, if we change what we do, like what will happen to all these associate professors, that's when you kind of have to say, yeah, that's that's going to be rough for a lot of associate professors. The much bigger problem is the, you know, millions of people <laughs> who for, for whom these sorts of pathways are not appropriate. There's we've talked about all the money and a lot of cases, it's actually the time. It's it's the opportunity cost of these years that they spend. And then the, the last thing I always really want to emphasize, and, and this will be pretty policy wonkish of me, is that in a sense, the biggest problem is that we're not offering anything else. Like if we, you know, what, right. what I ultimately would like to see us do is take about half of what we spend subsidizing higher education today. So, you know, $125 billion a year. Say, actually, we're going to spend that on non-college pathways. We're going to spend that on subsidizing entry-level employment, on providing great training, on the additional cost of good vocational programs in high schools. And we're actually going to build a pathway that says, look, you can get to age 20 with on-the-job experience, savings in the bank, no debt, an industry credential, and a job. Which is actually more like the norm in other countries, other 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 uh, yes, Western countries, it is. correct? It, it, is, it is very much so around the world. And, you know, it's funny, there's... Uh, there's a wonderful chart I always like to show people of sort of all the developed economies, what share of their high school students are in some sort of career technical vocational program. And it's sort of, you know, 35 to 55%, generally speaking. Um, so a third to a half of students are in these kinds of programs. And then every country is there except the U.S. And there's a little footnote that says we've, we've had to exclude the U.S. from this chart because the U.S. system is too different. Because we're so good. Because we're the best. Yeah, right. America. <laughs> it's, it's like, well, no, but you could have put America on the chart. It just would have been at zero or, you know, or, or maybe at 2%, <laughs> right. yeah, depending yeah. on how you want to measure it. And so, you know, let's do that. Let's And, and let's say, look, here are these two pathways that are now available. And if, if everybody still wants to charge down the college pathway, this is America. And and that's going to be open to them as an option, though they'll, they'll bear more of the cost themselves. But I got to tell you, if those are the two pathways available... I'm pretty sure a pretty big share would prefer the non-college pathway. And I say that in part because we've surveyed thousands of American young adults and parents of young adults and asked them, which would you have preferred was available for you or your kid at the end of high school, four-year full ride to any college you could get into, or three-year paid apprenticeship leading to a good job? And most people choose, both the kids and the parents choose apprenticeship leading to a job. Among those who didn't complete college, of course, it's massive preference for for the apprenticeship. And one thing that I find really interesting is, is you know, kids who completed college, for the most part, unsurprisingly, will say, oh, I wish someone had paid for my college. But among, <laughs> right. among parents yeah. whose kids have successfully completed college, more than 40% of them still said, I would have preferred my kid had access to a, a three-year apprenticeship that that led to a good job. And, and I think that speaks to, to the extent to which, you know, really everyone across our system sees, yes, there are kids that, that the college works for, and that's fine. No one's suggesting we shutter all the colleges. But everybody now knows people, whether it's their own kids, friends from high school, siblings, 
for whom this is just not a good system. And I think the appetite for actually the, our obligation to offer an alternative and the appetite for that alternative is, is just enormous. It, this seems like a good place to pivot to the once and future worker, because it seems that what you just described is the difference between what people want, how they define success and happiness, and what the system is telling them that they should want, or what the system is telling them is available. Why'd you write the once and future worker? And and how do these things relate to the thesis of the book? So the, the thesis of the once and future worker is that at the end of the day, what's what's most important to how we analyze our economy and, and think about economics, but then also how we think about our own lives is, is really production more so than consumption. And, and so you the, you know, those are wonky abstract terms. But if you think about our culture and in fact, our you know politicians and our economists, everyone focuses on consumption. How much cheap stuff do we have to consume? In fact, in, in formal economic terms, the goal is to consume as much stuff as possible while doing as little work as possible, right? So if you could like snap your right. fingers and nobody had to work anymore and like one person made all the stuff and we could all just have as much of anything we wanted, that would be like the most prosperous society. Theoretically. And yet I think anyone who sort of has any experience in the actual, <laughs> in the actual world knows that that's just not true. Either thinking about what a society needs or, or what we need in our own lives you know, look, consumption is actually, you know, is important. I like stuff. I'm not one of these, you know, live in a cabin in the woods guys. But at least as important is our role as producers, is is our ability to feel like we are needed, that we do something that is useful to other people, that we sort of earn our keep, support ourselves, can support our families. And all of that comes down to you know, sometimes it's not in in the formal economy. So, you know, a, a homemaker who's working just as hard, raising kids, you know, doing things in the community, that can be exactly as valuable a role. But at the end of the day, when we're evaluating our own well-being and when we're evaluating what we what we want the economy to do and, and asking, is the economy working well, is we want that set of opportunities. And so the premise of the mm -hmm. book is to say, what if we we evaluated how everything's going, not by how much stuff we can <laughs> we can consume, but by whether our economy is actually creating the opportunities for everybody, whatever their aptitudes are, wherever the country they live, to actually find that work that's going to allow them to be a productive contributor and support themselves and their family. Well, I was just going to say, and on the one hand, that sort of can sound like simple or, or obvious um, or kind of American pie, but it, it actually turns out to be a, a dramatic shift from the way policymakers and economists think and have, have a ton of implications for, for what we should be doing differently in the country. And education is a perfect example of that. What are some other ones that you can touch on over the next couple yeah, of years? Yeah, sure. So, you know, a big one I think is is globalization and, and trade and immigration and, and how we think about America's role in the world. All of the theory behind free trade and, oh, you know, we should you know let China into the global system and trade with them as much as we can all of the theory that says this is going to make everyone better off is is purely a consumption analysis. And, and at least in the short run, as a consumption analysis, it's correct. The more free trade you have, the more places, the more cheap stuff you're going to have access to. As an analysis of what is actually going to put our economy and our nation on a trajectory to ensure that everybody can find a good job, it's woefully inadequate. And so, you know, I, I think trade's a good thing. I think we should trade with the world. But we should make sure we're doing it on terms that preserve the things that that matter most to us. And, and I'd say that's certainly something we haven't done. And then one more example that, that I like to, 
to emphasize is is the idea of, of unions and organized labor. And, you know, I have huge issues with the way that unions operate today. But the idea of organized labor, the idea of workers sort of joining together in solidarity to pursue their common interests, to sort of assert their power versus employers, I think is an extremely important and positive one. I think when we, as we've lost that in recent decades, as unions have sort of faded away, yes, that meant companies could be more efficient and make more cheap stuff. But what we lost, partly for workers in in their experience on the job and the kind of jobs available, but also just in in communities, I think was enormous. And so that's another example of a place where, in none of these cases, we should just go back to you know the 1950s or whatever. That's that's not going to solve any of these problems. But in thinking about what we should be aiming for, the sort of idea of just well, we'll just be this sort of you know open, free, globalized society of people enjoying really big TVs is just something I really think we have to get away from. And I think I believe these are your words, but the, the, the working hypothesis in the book is described, it says that a labor market in which workers can support strong families and communities is the central determinant of long-term prosperity and should be the central focus of public policy. That's pretty important. And it's, and it's a philosophical uh, tenet that if you don't believe that work is important, you're going to make very different decisions that if you believe that work is, a, is an important thing for the fulfillment of an individual and for the sustenance of families and that families are the cornerstone of our society. Yeah, that's, that's very well put. And, and I think it speaks also to sort of the crossroads that we're at. You know, I, I think we can all sort of litigate what has gone wrong in recent decades in America. But I think there's a, a fairly widespread consensus that, that there are real problems in America today and, and for the typical American family and in, in the shape of the American economy. And so in my mind, a lot of the question is, well, where do we go from here? And it seems to me there, there are basically two options. One is, is to focus on this idea of the working hypothesis and say what's actually going to generate long-term prosperity for us, even if it has some short-term cost, is focusing on building an economy that reintegrates everybody as a valued, productive contributor and every community and every part of the country. The other option, which you hear promoted, it's somewhat strange actually that this is the one preferred in many cases by progressives, is, is essentially to ask the question, well, where do I send the check? Right, that that we have people who are prospering. You know, if you're just measuring GDP of the economy, yeah. we 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 are richer than ever. You have all these people who are prospering under the existing system, and they don't want to hear about anything, any of these trade-offs that would actually mean curtailing their own choices or or affecting their well-being. But they're very happy to to write a check, pay more taxes, support bigger safety net programs. And you see sort of the end point of that is, is so-called universal basic income. And this idea that we can sort of address a lot of what's wrong if we just take all of this incredible wealth generated at the top and just spread it around. And if everybody was receiving enough money to live on, then surely that would be the first step in, in solving our problems. And in my mind, and I think the working hypothesis speaks to this, that's just exactly wrong. That, that for one thing, it does not solve our problems. It doesn't address what, what is actually causing our problems. But as importantly, it, it actually makes things worse. That part of what's so important about work and, and that role as a, as a contributing member of society is the idea that it's necessary, that, that you do your, your job for most people is not their favorite part of their day, but it has value and meaning because it is the means by which they provide for themselves and their family. 
And if you say on behalf of the government, actually, guys, we've got this. <laughs> the, the money's already coming right. in, but now we hope you will still go out and work. You've actually managed, you've almost imposed a tax, not, not on, the, on the monetary value of the paycheck, but of, of all the social value and rewards that come with actually getting a job, doing something productive, and supporting those to whom you owe support. And so I, I think we just have to recognize that that economics isn't just about making sure everybody has enough money. It's about making sure everybody has a place in the nation. Yes, that's a lot harder, but but that there's no substitute for it. But that's one that actually is hum- humanity focused. You know, I mean, that's one that that values that puts value on the individual and their family and their communities. It isn't. It is. I mean, I suppose you could call it compassionate conservatism. When you talk about families, you risk being lumped in with the moral majority or whatever the modern equivalent is, right? But it really is a humanity first thing. You want to you want to give people the dignity of work, not the sustenance of and, the and I think we have to be comfortable talking about family in exactly those terms. And be, because it there is a morality to family, and family also, you know, at the end of the day is the irreplaceable asset that and, and when you talked about the sort of the working hypothesis, there's that focus on long-term prosperity. You know, it's one thing to say we can mm. maximize what we consume tomorrow, but the only way we actually maximize our long-term prosperity is if we create an environment where families are able to raise kids who are then able to become the next generation and build upon what 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 they inherit uh, collectively. And work turns out to be incredibly important to that too, you know, Having well-paying jobs, especially for men, is is an incredibly important predictor of marriages and family formation in the first place. Having that kind of work is is incredibly important to family stability. You know, unemployment as a predictor of divorce is 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 an extraordinarily tight connection. And then being raised in a family where the parents are working and productive contributors and and modeling that is incredibly important to, to outcomes for kids as well. And so this, again, is where, you know, I described the model of, of the one person producing everything and everyone else just gets a check. Look, I, I don't think that's actually going to make individuals all that happy. But for me, the much bigger concern is I don't think there's any chance you actually sustain a society and a culture that encourages and rewards and supports people building families and doing the work of raising the generation, the next generation, if that's your economic framework. I think you have to have one, you, you have to have a culture and an economy built around the idea that, that the family unit is what generates prosperity in the long run. And therefore, we need an economy that allows and encourages people to form those family units, maintains the economic logic of a family unit as something that can support itself, and then positions young people as they come up through those families to take on the burdens themselves. Well, or in your writings, maybe think a lot about big problems uh, and the opportunities we have to address them. Where can our listeners and viewers find out more about you and your uh, yeah, work? Sure. Please check us out at americancompass.org. And you'll find all of our more theoretical thinking and then many, many wonky white papers as well. <laughs> Oren Cass, thanks for your time. Thank you. This was great. Hey, everybody, if you like what we're up to here at Crazy Money, do us and yourself a favor by following the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribing to our YouTube channel. Also, click the link in the show notes to subscribe to my new Substack, where you'll get biweekly thoughts on the role of money in our world and in our lives directly to your email inbox. Thanks for sticking around. We'll see you next week.